It says this. Would you read this with me? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, there's only one person who can say that they walked this earth perfectly. I say that humbly this morning, and I'm, I'm uh, kidding, obviously, right. Ha, ha, ha. Okay. I say that humbly, but uh, that's obviously referring to, uh, to Jesus. But here's the thing. Uh, walking perfectly in the world is not the determining factor of whether or not conflict exists in your life, right? Jesus walking perfectly never kept him from conflict. In fact, if we were measuring by, by that metric, what is it that causes conflict? It seems like the more perfect you are, the more truth that you walk in, the harder things are for you, right? It, it just kind of uh, precipitates conflict. And so that's, I, I try to remind my wife of that. It's just because I'm so right that we have disagreements. But um, Jesus' perfection did not keep him out of conflict. And uh, so this directly relates to last week in terms of walking the truth and it causing conflict and it, and it taking courage and faithfulness to hold fast to the truth throughout all of life. So this morning we're going to be Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, talking about fighting for faithfulness. Nobody has to teach you how to fight for something you believe in. You do it uh, just intuitively. It's something that you will pursue. And what do we do with that when it's, it hap it's happening in the church? And so Jesus promised the disciples that there would be a lot of conflict in their lives. He promised them that if they were to walk into his truth, if they were to abide in him, that they would experience the same kinds of things that he experienced. G.K. Chesterton is uh, credited with this, but also it was said William Barclay. So whoever you prefer in this uh, quote, it doesn't matter. The, the principle remains true. Jesus promised the disciples three things. One, that they would be completely fearless. Two, absurdly happy and three, and in constant trouble. And you can see how those three things would be related, right? If you're fearless about pursuing the truth, you're content in knowing that you are accepted, that you're, you're, um, you're measured by the faithfulness to that regard, you will uh, walk through that happily, and you'll find yourself in constant trouble. So we are indebted to leaders and people that have the ability to commit faithfully to truth and to hold fast to those kinds of ideals, regardless of what kind of trouble it creates for them. In fact, we have a holiday coming up that we kind of think of, well, that's just America's birthday. But really, if you think about what's underneath that, America's birthday and the 4th of July, it has to do with a group of people that said this, we care more about obeying the word of God king than we do about the word of a man king. And we want to be able to, to do that with our whole hearts. And so they left England and they came here and settled America under the, the law of God being the ruling law of the land. And because they were courageous in that and held fast to that and in pursuit of that ideal, it led to division 
right? They said, we can't be under the king anymore and abide by these rules. In fact, it led to bloodshed and war, right? But the outcome of that was us being able to say America that we know today is from those kind of commitments. And so it's not that all, all uh, division and all conflict is bad. It's that it's when, when it's, when it's uh, contention around faithfulness or when it's around sin, we need to be careful about how we understand approaching those kinds of conflict. And so the question is not, it doesn't bewilder us when we come into conflict with people that are, quote-unquote, our enemies, right? We, we just know they're, they're on the opposite side of things. Like when Jesus says, hey, in this world you will have trouble. If the world hates you, know that they first hated me. And that's why they hate you, right? We get that, that kind of uh, contention from outside. But what happens when the contention or the disagreement or the conflict is more like a long friend-ally lines, right? Where, where we're on the same side, and somehow now we, we find ourselves at odds with one another. What do we do with that kind of contention and conflict? And so that's where we're at in the text this morning in Acts 15. So would you pray with me before we get to the Word, and we'll see what the Lord would have. Father, thank you for your good Word this morning. I pray for our um, ears and our hearts and our minds as we set them before you and say, do what you please for us and in us, that you would speak your truth to us, and um, that we would just find our hearts and our lives renewed in um, seeing what you want for us in faithfulness. Father, I pray for um, a word that would encourage those who need to be encouraged, that it would check and rebuke our hearts where we've maybe walked astray this morning, and in all things that you would be glorified in uh, bringing fruit through word taught this morning. So keep me from air. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, well, just a short, short few verses this morning, and we'll just uh, take them uh, piece by piece, but let me just read the whole thing so that we're all on the same page going into it. Starting in 36, it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, who's called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with him the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and they departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." All right, so there it was, sort of the end of an era, if you will. Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo, uh, sort of since the get-go as things trans, uh, translated out of Jerusalem into uh, Gentile lands and the gospel's being proclaimed, this, these, these two guys can't find a way to pr proceed in the mission together. So verse 36 simply says this, after some days, that was after bringing the letter from the council down to uh, Antioch, and there's great rejoicing from um, the, the church there. And there's just a uniting in spirit around the, the truth of this brand new scripture, right? The word of the Lord that's carried down and taught to the people. And so this comes on the heels of that council that was in Jerusalem. And so there's a season here of strengthening. It says they stayed for some time. We don't know how long that some time is. But essentially this, it's strengthening everybody's heart and unity around the word of God, which is what we do as the church. We, we gather around the Word of God. We seek to be built up and strengthened in faithfulness to that world. Well, excuse me, that Word. So Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch probably something like a year, 
a year and a half, something like that. We don't really know an exact timeline, but somewhere in there. And they teach for a year there. But I want you to notice real quick that what it says here, that they decide, they just say, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They come to this conclusion, not because they're told to. It's not the pastors of the church that say, hey, you ought to go do this. There's no missions council. It is them taking up the mantle of what they had already been tasked with doing. Paul has a mission. Barnabas has a mission. They're called, filled in the spirit to do these things. And they decide it's not a, it's not a top-down, we're telling you what to do kind of structure. And also notice whether Paul and Barnabas come and go, though they're considered, quote-unquote, part of the leadership of the church and they're teaching and helping build up the church, the, the church doesn't rise and fall on their presence in Antioch. They've come and gone and, and done missionary journeys. They went up to Jerusalem. And so the church still functions without them. There is a, a necessity of a plurality of leadership. Why? Because people are dif- gifted with different things. And they have different skills. And God is using them in different ways for the good of the body. And so we need a variety of people, not just one person that does everything, right? And, and, and nothing rises and falls on whether or not these guys are, are there teaching or whether they're there prophesying or whether Barnabas is there encouraging the church still goes on, if you want to say it this way, without them. And so Paul and Barnabas have been a team maybe for something like 10 or 12 years since um, coming together in, uh, in Antioch. And, and, and uh, as remember, Barnabas went and found Paul and Tarsus and brought him there. And they've kind of been over the church there for a while. And so they've been through some stuff. God has used them as a team as individually, there is some serious water under the, the friendship bridge there. They, they've experienced, Paul died one time, right? They, they've gone through miracles. And uh, so, so there's a lot there that kind of holds these things together. So I don't want you to get the sense where, where you think of somebody that you've been friends with and say, hey, if I see them at the grocery store, you know, we say, how's it going? I'm fine. How are you? This isn't, um, this isn't just bro-fiving when they see each other. There's like a deep commitment to being together. But I want you to see that their tie of of moving forward is not one to another, but each to the gospel. They're they're dedicated more to the mission than they are to one another. And that that happens in, um, it, it ought to happen, I should say, like in marriages as well. You should be deeply committed to that person, but you should also be Ask men are more committed to your relationship to God, being close to God, following God, regardless of what happens with this other person. And that, that, the problem with our relationships, how we treat things often one time, uh, most times, is we, we fall in and out of favor with people, and so friendships come and go. And, and, and that can happen. But if we're more committed to some other thing, some more important substance, that's what we need to, to keep moving forward. And so that's exactly what drives them forward in this in this moment. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone to the work with them. So real quick, uh, who's John Mark? Well, John Mark is uh, variously called Mark, and sometimes John, who was also called Mark, or just John, right? Mark, uh, as you would know him, is Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark in your Bible. That's Mark as he comes to be the mature uh, faithful leader um, later on in his life. But as we see him right now, he's a younger man. We don't know how old, not teenager, but somewhere above that. And we first see him kind of referred to as, uh, remember, Peter uh, breaks out of prison by the help of an angel, and he goes to Mary's house. And Mary is Mark's mother. 
Now, you don't need to keep track of all these relations, but you need to see that Mark has roots in Jerusalem. And he is tied to Peter, who is uh, sort of the leader in the Jerusalem church at that time. And so they, they have a, a close relationship, but also Mark happens to be Barnabas's cousin. So you sort of have this relationship triangle between Peter, Barnabas, and Mark, where they're, they're very close together. They, they share, if you want to say it this way, sort of a, a home territory, a hometown. Mark's also considered by most commentators to be the young man who left his clothes when Jesus was being arrested in Gethsemane. He runs out of there naked, right? He got out with uh, nothing but his life, okay? So, so that's Mark, okay? So there, there's a relationship triangle, but Paul sees Mark at this moment, and he says, we ought not to take him with us. Why? Because he withdrew from us when we went to the work. And so if you want to sum up the argument, the source of conflict is this. Barnabas wanted, and Paul thought it best. Barnabas wanted something, and Paul thought it best. Now, the reason why I take time to point that out is it doesn't say Barnabas sinned, and Paul brought it to him and showed him his error. Or Paul was in sin, and Barnabas brought it to him and showed him that this is not a question of sin, okay? And, and we need to cement that first because we get into a, a sort of a, the Bible argues with itself if we don't have this sort of clear at the outset. And so I want you to see that this is a question of what is wise at this moment? What constitutes faithfulness to the calling at this moment? So what does Barnabas want? Barnabas wants to bring John, who's called Mark, right? I might call him John, I might call him Mark, I might call him John Mark, but I'll try to stay consistent and just call him Mark from here on out, okay? So he wants to bring Mark with them to the churches that they had initially visited up in the region of Galatia, to go and visit them. They want to see how they're doing. They want to encourage them. They've got this new letter that's come from uh, the Holy Spirit. It says, hey, the Gentiles are included just like we proclaim to you. And so they want to carry that. And the question around this is, what is it that actually caused Mark to turn back on the first journey? Okay? What, What is it that he got to Pamphylia and decided that it was not worth going on? And, um, Different, different people speculated about different things. Was he homesick? I mean, he's kind of a young guy. It's kind of his first journey, uh, maybe. Uh, there's also some speculation about just the actual like geography of Pamphylia. You get to this coastal uh, arrival, and then I guess there's like an 1,100-foot uh, like vertical hike in a certain amount of time through dense, you know, uh, uh, treacherous territory. Maybe he saw that and like turned back. There's also speculation that when they arrived in that region that Paul is very sick. He refers to this a couple different times, once in Galatians. He says, hey, you, you bore with me even though I was, I was infirm at the moment. And so maybe Mark just saw that and was like, hey, that's not for me. And so he just kind of has a weak constitution, turns back, and um, he doesn't want to, uh, to carry the weight forward. And so this is the source of contention because Paul thought it best not to take Mark on this. He believes at this moment that would be a mistake. And I don't think there's a compelling argument to be made uh, if Paul, or excuse me, if Mark was just homesick, if he just turned back, or that if even if if Paul was sick at that moment, he, I think Paul would see that for what it is, and yet that, that's not the case. He is he's adamant about this, and so to make sense of really the the real, um, I don't know, contentiousness of, of this disagreement, you have to understand uh, uh, what it is that Paul, that Paul is alluding to when he says. Mark is the one who withdrew from us and did not go with us to the work. So the word withdrawn here is, uh, in the Greek, it doesn't matter, epistemi, okay? But it, it's variously translated different ways. So here, 
Commentators, uh, or excuse me, translators that use the word withdrawn, and I think that's important, but I want you to take the range of meaning for a second. It can mean to forsake, abandon, rebel, to turn back, to desert, or to avoid association. Now, all those things help us get a sense of what happened when they arrived in Pamphylia, and Mark decides to, quote-unquote, withdraw. He has forsaken the mission. He's abandoned his, his crew. He rebels against the cause. He's turned back away from what he was called to, right? All of these things are important um, senses to the word. And so um, John Mark leaving them in Pamphylia it happens in Acts 13, 13. And it's only a passing mention. It says they arrived there and John Mark turned back home. And so I said when that happened, we'll get to this later and here we are to it later. So this is, I want you to get this, the whole sense of the context of withdrawing. So they had just... Uh, sort of work their way across Cyprus, evangelizing, and right as they get to the end of the island is when they meet uh, the, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. And remember, he's got this, this magician or a guy in his ear. And uh, so it's at that moment that Paul kind of steps into his own. He, he changes from Saul to Paul, and he's referred to that from here on out as Paul. And he, he really steps into his apostolic calling. He performs a miracle. He strikes the guy blind. He converts Sergius Paulus, and that um, also changes it from being Barnabas and friends to Paul and company, right? After that, it's Paul's the leader, and Barnabas is kind of takes a, a second role to, to Paul here. And so it's, it's that context that we see Mark begin to turn back. But all of that happens before uh, the Jerusalem Council. Everything that we just walked through, everything that cemented the Gentiles' place and acceptance in into the, the church uh, without any uh, reservations, without any prerequisites. So this all happened before the council had convened to settle those issues. And remember that Peter, Barnabas, and John Mark all have this strong relational um, uh, connection together. Now, Paul describes what happens, right, leading up to the events precipitating the Jerusalem council in Galatians chapter 2. And so I want you to now keep track of what's happening. So just so we're all on the same page. Before the Jerusalem Council, after John Mark had turned back, there's something that occurs that sort of precipitates the problem. It's, it's not just that people came down from Jerusalem saying the Gentiles had to be circumcised and, and, and obey the law of Moses to be accepted. That it, it caught up some of the people who were part of the church in Antioch. So this is Paul sort of uh, recapping the situation in Galatians chapter 2. Now listen to what he says. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why was he condemned? For before certain men came from James, those were the people that came down from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, guess what that word is, withdrew or drew back. He drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Well, it's not just Peter. It says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So now you have this sort of tight triangle of, of guys, Barnabas, Peter, and Mark, all sort of probably uh, doing the same thing here. They're withdrawing from Gentile fellowship. And now if you overlay that on what Paul says happened when they arrived in Pamphylia, once it starts to look like a real Gentile mission, if you read before Acts 13, 13, John Mark has this role of helping in the synagogues with the Jews. He's helping spread the word among the Jews. But once it sort of transitions and it's just Gentiles, it says that's when Mark turned back. So if you, if you 
understand the context of what's happening. It's the same language of being separated, forsaking um, the fact that the, the Gentiles are included. So this makes a stronger, albeit circumstantial, case that what happened is that Mark basically is doing what Peter had done, which is he's withdrawing. He doesn't want to be part of the Gentile mission. He's okay saving Jews. He likes that. But when it's exclusively or, or more effectively, Paul's leading the mission to the Gentiles because that's what he's called to. That's Mark's time where he turns around and he says, this isn't for me. So that's the circumstantial case here, I think, on what's actually happened and why he says he's the one who withdrew. So we ought not to take him now as we go back to the same places where his living testimony says something different than the word of God that we're carrying. That says, hey, we're, we're included. You're included. Everyone's included. Now, I, I know they're like, who's the new guy? Well, he was with us the first time, but he doesn't like you very much, okay? That's a problem. So it's the testimony of Mark's life that I think is that issue. Specifically, the contradiction to the people that Paul is called to. He's called to the Gentiles. He must be about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So is Paul being insensitive? Does he not believe in second chances? Should he have more grace for, Barna, or, excuse me, for, for Mark at this moment? The question is not, what is best for Mark? That, 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 that question could be answered in, in a better way. But the question for Paul is not what is best for Mark. The question for Paul is what is most faithful for Paul. The question is not what is good for Mark. The question is what is faithful for Paul. And that's the, that's the primary question you ask in any situation. Not what is best for another person as your, your first priority. Your first priority is faithfulness to what God has given you to do, okay? So there's support for this um, idea. The, the priority, if I asked you what's more important for the church, is Paul's mission to get more people, to carry the gospel to more people, is that more important? Or is John Mark's development in the Lord more important? Is him getting grace from, from Paul, is that more important, that he needs to kind of grow up in the Lord a little bit more? And, and Paul could do that by waiting or, or allowing him to come along. And so we, we sort of have these two conflicting problems. Do, are we more, should we be more people-oriented? Do we care more about the development, about the John Mark who, yeah, he blew it, but maybe he could do better this time? Or do we say, no, the, 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 the mission's more important. And then we, we sort of have a case where we look at these things where they're mutually exclusive, and they're not. They're one and the same. If you're going to develop people and show them what the gospel is, you need people so that you can develop them. So both are important. You need people so that you can invest in people. And you need to invest in people so that you can get more people, right? So it's, it's both and. They're independent of each other, but they're interdependent on one another. So mission is not more important than people. But people is not more important than mission. It's that different people are tasked and able to effectively do those things if they're both faithful to what they're able to do. Does that make sense? The problem becomes when one person is trying to do all the things and must choose between two necessary things. So when you have a variety of gifts and a variety of ways to serve, you ought to serve in the way you're meant to serve and not impose your priority on other people because faithfulness to their priority may not be faithfulness to your priority, but you ought to remain faithful to your priority. Am I clear? That's important. Hold fast to that. Why? Because there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated. Okay? So that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark and he sailed away to Cyprus. This is the last place that Mark was doing good. 
Mark was able to serve in the synagogues. He was, is to sort of go back to the place where he fell down, if you want to look at it that way, right? But Paul chose Silas. That's why verse 34 uh, becomes important. It's not included there. It says, oh, everybody returned back to Jerusalem except for Silas who remained. Silas has pretty much the same gifting as Barnabas did. He's, uh, he's considered a prophet in the church. He's, he's told as a leading man, one who's full of the Holy Spirit. So basically the same characterizations that we've had of Barnabas along the way. Paul now has a new partner that fulfills the same things that Barnabas was doing. And they're just going separate ways. Why? Because of this sharp distinction, this sharp disagreement between them. This, there's only one other place in the whole New Testament where this same word for a sharp, sharp distinction, a sharp uh, disagreement, but it, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It, it doesn't mean anything bad in and of itself. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, let us consider how to stir up, that's the word, how to provoke one another to love and good works. So that same word where it says there arose a sharp distinction, it should really be understood as there arose between them something provoking an, uh, an outcome, right? There is two calls to faithfulness I'm sorry, I'm staticky today. Okay, because of the two calls to faithfulness, they, that has to be resolved. And that resolution is going two different directions. So that same word of, 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 of sharp distinction doesn't necessarily mean something bad. And you also need to hear that disagreement is not bad. Disagreement in and of itself is not bad. We are so fearful of, of, of uh, squashing all of the terms or conflict together down so we should never have any kind of disagreement because we're all unified in spirit. If, if everybody agrees with everything 100% of the time, I don't know who said it, but you know, somebody's not thinking. If we all agree 100% of the time, somebody's not thinking, okay? People have different ideas about different things and that doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong or sinful. And that's what I think will help us to understand this conflict better. This is not a disagreement over sin. If it was, that would be mentioned in the passage. Somebody would be rebuked. Somebody would need to repent. And that's why you don't see the Matthew 18 thing playing out. There's two reasons primarily. One is because this is not within the context of a church. These are two apostles fulfilling their uh, missionary calling. Okay? So the, the whole Matthew 18 where you go to your brother who sinned against you, if he doesn't listen, you bring a friend. If not, tell it to the whole church. That doesn't apply here. One, because it's not the church. And two, because this is not uh, over sin. It's not talking about somebody being in sin and the other person not recognizing that. Otherwise, we would see that take place in this passage. So disagreements in and of themselves aren't sinful. This is not boo-hoo, I'm taking my ball and going home and too bad, so sad. That's, that's not what's happening here. This is two people being faithful. And in that way, we need to look at each, what is it they're being faithful to, and take the best of that so that it encourages you and whatever it is that you ought to be faithful to. So we need to commend them in their faithfulness to their different tasks. So what is, what is Paul being faithful? Well, he's being faithful to the explicit command, the commission of the Lord. When he is saved, he's blinded, Right? He's, he goes into the city, and he's told that he's going to be the one to carry uh, the name of the Lord before the Gentiles and before kings and governors, and he's going to suffer much for the Lord. He knows what his life holds. Okay? And 
If you know that kind of information, we don't get that kind of information a lot of times, but if you know that kind of information, you ought to be faithful with it, right? If the word of the Lord says explicitly, do this, not that, your faithfulness is measured by that and nothing else. So Paul is being faithful to the calling that he received. And so he must preach to the Gentiles. And to compromise on how he could do that, to compromise his testimony, is to be unfaithful, okay? It is unwise for him to risk impairing or hindering his faithfulness to that calling by seemingly pragmatic reasons. Like, hey, I've been with Barnabas for a long time. This seems, seems silly to wreck this, this long-going thing just over this disagreement. That's a pragmatic reason for Paul to compromise and then be unfaithful to his own calling. And, and, and in that way, compromise is not always the solution for conflict. It's tempting to think that compromise or moderation is the solution for every problem, and it's not. Good leaders need the courage. Actually, I shouldn't just say leaders. Everyone needs the courage and willingness to stand by conviction, regardless of whatever else comes against you. If you cannot or do not do that, then you're just going to make whatever the most, most pragmatic choice is. And, and I, I can't think of necessarily an exception to this. Maybe there is one. But contending for the truth when it's unpopular is uh, essentially what you're called to as a Christian, right? To live by, by principle, not by preference. So what happens is people look at that from the outside sometimes and they go, hey, you're just being prideful and you, you need to come down a little bit. And, and sometimes what's viewed as pride um, when it's supposed to be principle, the easy designation here is this. Are, is it somebody that, um, that is living and, and uh, they can't say that they were wrong because of pride? Are they unwilling to come down off of this distinction because of pride? Or is it they're unwilling to come down off this because it's a principle? So basically, I mean, the Christian church, the history is littered with these kinds of people. And they're the kinds of people that we look at later on. And in their moment, we say, man, that guy was divisive. Or why is that guy being so resolute on that thing that doesn't seem to matter in the moment. Or everybody's going this way, and that person has to keep going that way. Why, why are they doing that? So besides Paul, we have Athanasius, who is famously, as he's being mar martyred, he says, hey, the whole world is against you, Athanasius. And he says, then let it be known that Athanasius is contramundum, which is against the world. Right? Everybody looks at that moment and says, everybody's against you, but he's the guy that's right. Right? There's other cases of that. Spurgeon famously was excommunicated from the Baptist Union. He said, there's a liberal slide going on in the church, and I'm going to stand fast here. So they said, you know what? You're on the outside. You're, you're not going with the flow, so we're, we're just going to excommunicate you from this. He stands vindicated by history. Faithfulness is vindicated by God. So going back to G.K. Chesterton's quote, you have to be uh, fearless, and you have to be content. You have to be, be able to be content in being uh, disappointing others, but being content in your uh, being faithful to the Lord. And in that, then you'll find trouble, but it's good trouble. There's good trouble. That if you make trouble with the right kind of people or the wrong kind of people, it's a good thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is another example who had to flee uh, Nazi Germany as a, a pastor speaking truth when it wasn't popular, saying that this ought not to take place. Another outcast who must stand fast on conviction, on principle. At the moment, everybody says that guy is the outlier. He's the problem. He's being divisive. He's calling the church, the Lutheran church at that moment, to faithfulness. He says, we can't abide this. So, if you are content in pleasing 
um, excuse me, if you are content in pleasing God, you will not be content to please men. If you are content in pleasing God, you will not be content in pleasing men. But if you are content to please men, you will not please God. If you're, if you're more concerned about what somebody else is going to think of you, then you, it, it's going to be real hard to please God. I, I would almost say that you can't. Because that's your priority. And you'll be driven by the pragmatic excuses. There's always a pragmatic excuse why you ought to compromise. Financial, relational, whatever it is, something's going to say, that would make this path easier. And doesn't it seem like it's just a small step? And that's just, it's the first step in compromise, but it's the first step in, in unfaithfulness. A compromise at the cost of faithfulness is just a fancy way to say unfaithful. And you're, you're called to be faithful, not to make people happy. Everyone is called to be faithful, not to make other people happy. So that's what Paul is, um, is called to and what he must be faithful to. And he, so he sees, he sees Mark at this moment as somebody who would compromise his faithfulness to that task. So we say, you know, well, shouldn't he just have some goodwill? Shouldn't he be kind to Mark? That's not his calling. That's Barnabas's calling. Every time we see Barnabas, we, he's doing something great for another person. His name means son of encouragement. Well, the first time we see him, Acts, I think two it is, he's selling off property and giving the proceeds to the church to help people. He's a people guy. Paul is a mission guy. Barnabas is an encourager. He's, he, he needs to be the guy that invests in Mark and brings him up, which he does. Mark later on is commended by Paul as somebody that's useful for teaching, somebody that's useful to him in the faith. Barnabas is the guy that's meant to be the one that is investing in Mark at this moment, and that's exactly what he does. So it's not that we need to say, well, Paul should come off his high horse and, and be the guy that invests in Mark, or that Barnabas should throw Mark to the side and get on board with Paul, because both of them would have to sacrifice or compromise something of their own calling to make that suffice. Are you with me? Barnabas is an encourager, operating in his calling and his gifting and his spirit. That's what he does. He loves second chances, third chances, tenth chances. He's the guy that brought Paul in when, when he was Saul, when he was still murdering Christians. That, that guy, that guy with that reputation, he's the one that brings Saul in to the brothers and says, hey, let's give this guy another chance. That's, that's Barnabas's MO. He needs to stay faithful to that. And for him to do that requires him to part ways with Paul. They've got different visions, different callings, different perspectives in this moment. And the result of this then is this. So he's commended by the brothers, Paul is, in the grace of the Lord. And it says he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here's the deal. These, these are two apostles. So we look at what they're doing as being faithful to the call and the spirit that they have. We have a more collective calling, something that... We don't get like necessarily audible voice of God or somebody prophetically saying that this is what you're called to in the same way that you could stand resolutely and say, this is what I'm going to do. We have the word of God though. We have scripture that tells us what we can do and what we ought to do and how we ought to be faithful. And within the context of the church, it's always abundantly clear how we operate when there's conflict, okay? So out of Colossians chapter three, let me sort of transition now pivot to what do we do then within the church how do we operate when there's sort of division or or separation it says put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts so first have compassion kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So within the the context of of a local gathering, there should not be a spirit of division where you're wrong and I'm right. When we're bound together in that kind of community, we're called to all of those things. And we're called to them collectively, but that happens by us individually still being faithful so that we don't have to say, well, I'm called to people and you're called to mission. We got to go to different churches. It's stay in the same church and make the fullness or the wholeness of what God wants to do um, together. And it's all undergirded or overarching under love. Love is the binding piece in all of this. Love constitutes the wholeness of it. And so when love governs all of these different things, when we ask individual questions about, well, what do we do in this case? Or how do we operate in that case? It always comes, well, in love, do this. So we have all kinds of different, maybe situations that we might want to think about that should be governed by love in the local body. Specifically, what do we do with somebody like Mark who's fallen or somebody that's new to the faith that doesn't quite get what they ought to be doing and what they ought not to be doing. They're immature. Well, that's governed by love. And in that, we need to talk about what we ought to do. What do we do when we have terms of, of conscience? I think something is right. And you, you're, you're, um, you're tripped up by that. I think it's okay for me. I have freedom to do that. But, you, but it really makes you um, feel like I, that was partaking in sin. That should be governed also by love so that we can come together in unity. What about... What about how, what is it that actually keeps us uh, bound together? What if you wrong me? Or what if I wrong you? Well, forgiveness because of love, because you've been forgiven, also governed. What about the truth? What if we disagree on the truth? Well, beloved, come together on the spirit of unity in love so that you will know the truth. So let's just talk real quickly through those um, few things. So maturity is, is almost always, if, if you want to take it as a subtitle, of of the main issues, it's always kind of revolving around that subject of immaturity. Both the people that are mature and the immature person, because that governs both when we're talking about sin or failures and also in terms of conscience. What do we do when somebody is is tripped up by something that we think is okay? Well, I I read it at the beginning. It says, love covers a multitude of sin. It, It has to do with being able to cover up offenses using love instead of something else. So maturity being the underlying case of this Uh, resolved in love looks like this. Paul is not seeking to uh, reconcile an issue of sin. And I said that initially, but when it's not a case of sin, it's a case of preference. When it's a case of preference, the question is this, when when, when should I give up my preference for the good of another person? Okay, so if that's the question, what's the answer? The answer is every time that it doesn't constitute you sinning or harming the truth or mission of the church. When should I give up my rights, freedoms, preferences, my desires, my wants? When should I do that for somebody else? Them being immature and me being a mature person. Think about this for a second. When should I do that? Anytime possible, every time possible, so long 
as it does not cause you to walk in sin or does not permit them to walk in sin. And that's important. If, if the issue here is Mark continuing to walk in sin, Paul coddling that and saying, well, I'll just turn the other, I'll just turn the other direction. I, I won't worry about that. Well, now you're participating in that sin by making it possible. So sometimes we, we get so worried about conflict or, or offending somebody that we encourage sin by not being faithful to the truth. And so you can see how these are all related together. So the person that's called immature is the one who can't lay aside their preferences. The immature one is the one that can't lay aside their freedoms for the good of somebody else. But the mature one can. And it says, if, if any of you is caught in sin, let those who are mature, let those who are spiritual go to them and speak to them. And Jesus does this, yes, in Matthew 18, he talks about how we ought to restore people and that we ought to go, with, go to them and, and in private and speak to them to try to show them the truth. Hey, this is what God's word said. You're in sin and try to win them back. So preference here is not rule the day. But in terms of conscience, loving one another, lay aside everything that you possibly can so long as it doesn't cause you to sin or allow them to continue in sin. Is that clear? Okay, good. So um, we'll get more on conscience next week. Sometimes the right thing or an okay thing at the wrong time or in the wrong place or in the wrong way is the wrong thing, right? An okay thing, a freedom you have, a right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time or in the wrong place is the wrong thing. And so we need to be foremost above all things um, faithful to that. And we always root our relationship with one another in our awareness of our own need for forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us as we forgive others. We, we are made to be aware of our own frailties, our own problems. Uh, you, you ought to be more aware of that than you are of other people's problems, other people's tendencies for sin, other people's failings. That's why Jesus says, be sure you remove the log hanging off of your eye before you go and do eye surgery on the other guy's splinter, right? The, the idea there being the thing that's right here close to your face, you ought to be aware of before you go looking to help other people with their issues. So always rooting that in um, our own forgiveness, that we know that we've been forgiven, and so we use that to extend forgiveness to others, letting grace reign over everything that we do. So the last aspect of this has to do with mission. Like, how do we not forsake the truth? Making sure that that is rooted in what God says. So we shouldn't look at any of this and go, well, you know, we got different opinions, and so we'll just, we'll just let everybody do what they want. Like, it's just total chaos. You know, it's herding cats, right? That's not the picture of, of the church that's painted. It's not, it's not uniformity in the sense that we all do the same thing in the same way, marching in lockstep. It's that we're all going towards the same goal, maybe at different paces. We've left at different times. Somebody's more mature than somebody else. Somebody's got a different way to help bring up the rear or lead in the front or encourage people along the way or whatever you want to use for the illustration. It's that we're all going the same direction. Unity is not uniformity, but the purpose is that we're all marching towards the same truth, the same mission, the same goal. And in that way, they're all interrelated, just like people's not important or more important and, and mission's not more important. You need both. You need people to accomplish the mission. And if you don't accomplish the mission, you won't have people. You need all of it. But you're marching towards the same consensus truth that we're all supposed to be marching toward. 
which is faithfulness, abiding in God's word, trusting in him, following whatever it is that he asks us to do. So here's the resolution on the morning. It's not a case of right and wrong. It's not sin and not sin. It's always a question of what's best in this moment. What constitutes faithfulness for me? And so far as you can, in good conscience, not, not walking in sin, not allowing other people to walk in sin, do all that you can to remain together. But if at some point it, it becomes necessary that you continue walking this direction and everyone else is going here, you must abide by your conscience to walk in faithfulness. And hopefully, if everything's working the right way, if you're misled in that, somebody can come to you with the truth, with God's word and say, here's why it's in error. And they plead with you to come back. And that's how you reconcile things. Everybody just helping each other walk along the same direction so that we all come to unity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father.